Hello, this is Dr. Gary Sherman, The Heart Guy, and I welcome you to our exciting and informative podcast titled The Heart Guy Presents the Heart of the Matter, bringing you interesting discussions and conversations related to the vast and important subject of heart disease and heart failure and organ donation and everything related to those things in today's ever-changing world. I'm extremely honored to have as my special guest today an inspiring contributor to our global heart health community, Dr. Sanjog Kalra. Dr. Kalra was born and raised in Canada to parents of India origin. Following graduate studies at the University of Toronto in clinical pharmacology, Dr. Kalra completed his MD training at the University of Calgary. He returned to the University of Toronto in 2008 for internal medicine training before moving to Halifax for his adult cardiology fellowship at Dalhousie University and finally back to Toronto for advanced cardiac catheterization and intervention at St. Michael's Hospital. In 2015, Dr. Kalra moved to New York to train under worldwide leaders in the field as the first complex high-risk and indicated patient fellow at Columbia University Medical Center. During his CHIP fellowship, Dr. Kalra gained expertise in complex and high-risk coronary interventions, chronic total occlusion percutaneous cardiac intervention, contemporary hemodynamic support implantation and management, and cardiac critical care. Dr. Kalra recently completed his tenure as the Director of Complex Coronary Therapeutics and the Associate Director of the Interventional Cardiology Fellowship Program at Einstein Medical Center in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. He has now returned to Canada to take up a position at the world-recognized Toronto General Hospital, where he is focused on helping to build a gold-standard complex percutaneous cardiac intervention program. He is recognized nationally and internationally as an expert in the area of complex coronary revascularization, modern hemodynamic support therapies, and in the management of shock and critically ill heart patients. Dr. Kalra is married with two young children, and he and his family remain closely connected to their roots in India and return frequently. Dr. Kalra, welcome to the heart of the matter. Gary, thank you so much for that generous introduction and for the, the welcome and the, and the opportunity to be part of such a great initiative. Well, thank you. You know, I always know it's going to be a nice conversation when, when I have somebody with a, such a uh, impressive bio. And, and I look forward to our, our questioning and also to your answering a lot, of, a lot of my questions and I'm sure educating our listeners. Thanks so much. It's very kind. To start with, where in Canada did you grow up and what was your childhood like? Actually, I grew up uh, out west. I grew up in Edmonton, Alberta. So northern Alberta was considered sort of a gateway to northern Canada. Childhood was like any other childhood. I had loving, kind parents who stressed education and stressed the importance of trying to do whatever it is that you do as best as you possibly can. So I consider myself very lucky. I was able to access the very best of family support whenever I needed it. Didn't stop me from being a funny, goofy, and awkward kid. But, you know, we all are, aren't we? Um, yeah, yeah. And you're right. I was going to say you're fortunate to have parents that, that were able to do that for you. It's not easy being a parent in any generation and certainly then, you know. Well, it's, cer- it's certainly true. Now having my own little kids, I realize how difficult a balance that can be, <laughs> yeah. particularly when you're trying to maintain uh, reasonably high-level careers. And, yeah. uh, and so when I, when I grew up, I uh, you know, started school in Edmonton and then realized that I needed to mature as a person. I needed to grow up. And and that's what prompted the move to Toronto. Uh, I would only say, and I'm not not to suggest that I'm an expert as a parent, but um, I raised two great kids, and I think 
the secret sauce is just to uh, show them that you care about what they're doing. And it's pretty much as simple as that one way or the other. Good advice. Good <laughs> advice. So what are considered complex, high risk interventional procedures and what drove you to want to perform high risk procedures? Yeah, that's a great question. So, you know, trying to figure out the nature of what a complex or high risk coronary intervention is comes down to really figuring out what the need is for these types of things and who the patients are on whom complex coronary interventions are, are performed. Ultimately, when we try to define what the complex high risk and indicated patient or complex coronary interventional space or chip space is comprised uh, of what it's comprised, uh, we think about a, an intersection between patients who have a lot of underlying diseases or comorbidities, patients who have really complex heart artery disease, and I'll get into what that means in a second, and then patients whose hearts already don't pump very well. And where all three of those features combine, the, that Venn diagram, if you will, that you can build in your head, the middle of the intersection of those three bubbles is what comprises your CHIP or your complex high-risk and indicated patient. Mm on whom heart artery interventions, interventions to reestablish blood flow through the heart arteries and improve the heart's function and improve symptoms and improve longevity are, are inherently high risk. From an anatomic perspective, patients who have multiple vessels that are blocked or who have very long extensive blockages, who have arteries that are 100% blocked, so-called chronic total occlusion, those who have a lot of calcium, those who have blockages at bifurcations or involving particularly important areas of the coronary tree, like the left main coronary artery, are considered complex and high-risk interventions. Mm. Um, but that's not really where the, the field stops. When we think about these types of procedures, there's a fair cognitive aspect to them as well. It's not just about see a blockage and fix it. It's about using the very best, most modern evidence-based therapies to try to figure out what the right thing is to do in these complex patients. Some of these patients are elderly. Some of them have kidney disease and bleeding problems and liver disease and lung disease and, and, and. And so when you combine all of these things with complex coronary anatomy, you've already got a difficult challenge ahead of you in trying to get a patient like that through a procedure that's, that's gonna require a lot of heart manipulation. And you have to add on the medical aspects of managing all of their other medical problems. And then finally, when you think about the heart and, and how to fix the heart, I mean, everything in the heart muscle is very intelligently designed and not surprisingly, right? And that's what nature does. But when a heart doesn't pump very well and you have to actually fix the arteries that supply it, you have to interrupt blood flow for periods of time. And hearts that are particularly damaged, they can't stand that all that well. They don't have the reserve or the ability to absorb those tiny little hits. And that's what renders those types of procedures really high risk. So the, um, the complex and high-risk interventional procedures involves the confluence of managing complex coronary anatomy and patient comorbidities and large bore access and mechanical circulatory support devices and modern intravascular imaging devices, physiology devices, et cetera, et cetera, to get the very best outcomes for these patients who have traditionally been undertreated, even though they have the most to gain from the treatment that we offer. The second question you asked was, why do I do this? <laughs> the truth is, I think, I mean, I think other than, you know, needing my head examined, right? <laughs> That these patients require the most input, right? You're at the bedside constantly. You're constantly dealing with pre- and post-operative challenges to try to get them through their procedures and recover them. But 
The reality is we as doctors, when you see a patient who's super, super ill, you get a feeling in the pit of your stomach that almost makes you want to recoil, right? Because you will understand this, right? You, you, you don't want to hurt a patient. Yeah. But in, in the chip space, we recognize that that feeling that makes you kind of recoil, that's actually a feeling you need to run towards because yeah. that's a patient that tells you, that's the patient telling you that they really need your help. Yeah. And so for me, the reason I did this was because I wanted to have an impact. A positive impact. And when patients are really, really sick, then the distance from their baseline to where you meet them, that delta, that delta is very large. And the, that delta is impact. So taking them from that, you know, that state of illness all the way back to their baseline or as close to that baseline as they can get, giving them that jump on their quality and quantity of life, that's impact. That's why I did what I did. Wow. Well, and thank you for that. The first thing that I was thinking when you were answering the first part of the question is, you know, the procedure itself is probably something that you're so well trained in. And so in the scope of the whole picture, it's probably not the most difficult part. The whole, the, what makes it difficult is all these variables that enter into it to cause you to need to think so carefully as to what approach to take. And I think in other words, the before, if you will, is probably more difficult than actually doing the procedure. Yeah, that's 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 often true. You know, any any good proceduralist, surgeon, interventionalist, whatever, sometimes the hardest thing to do is to say this is not a good idea to do. Yeah. Right? When not to up the the nature of these procedures because of the coronary anatomy renders the technical part of the procedures really really challenging sometimes. But that's part of what is fun about doing this is, is the technical challenge and knowing that you're getting access to the very best tools that we have, but you have to use your brain constantly. It's not just mechanical, it's also cognitive while doing the procedures to figure out how best to create a normal state of blood flow in the, in the heart arteries and how best to achieve good results. So it's, it's really a nice combination of technical challenge and yeah. cognitive challenge that allows us to, to help these, these patients that so need us. Well, that's great. So, so why are there challenges for particularly sick people to receive access to this type of care in cardiology? Yeah, that's a that's a good question, and it's it's a challenging question to answer because it's it's politically heated, hmm. right? The reality of medicine in the U.S. is that we have a market system that allows the volume of these types of interventions to be spread across many many operators. But we have evidence to show that the individuals who do the best job with complex disease are the ones that do the most number of cases. Mm -hmm. So when you then water down the number of cases you have across a very large group of people, very few people get the adequate volume or practice they need to get really good at. And when you're in a system that prizes safety and is conservative when it comes to the risk of complication, the safest but often default approach is because I can't do it, then it shouldn't be done or it can't be done. Mm. Patients are then misinformed and they're sometimes not aware that there are operators out there that specialize in these kinds of things that can help them. Mm -hmm. And the, the access to care issue then comes down to a generalized lack of awareness that patients have or even their providers have to the availability of some of these therapies. Yep. The yep. other challenge is that when you're sick, your sickest, it's tough to get the energy and the wherewithal to be able to look up and search out and find yeah. the types of people that specialize in these things. They're typically yeah. located at large academic centers, though there are certainly 
some truly world-class operators that are located in all kinds of smaller centers and smaller towns and cities throughout the U.S., Canada, and the world. But if you're if you're constantly worried about where your next breath is going to come from or that you can barely make your breakfast, how are you going to spend all that time trying to figure out who the right operator is to seek out to fix your disease? That's where you know our partners in the community come in, where we work very hard to educate them on what, what is available and to help them understand that we work as part of a team and nobody here is trying to usurp the privilege of caring for these people. It's more that we provide a, a particular specialty service and that specialty service is one cog in a very big care machine. And we are pleased to provide that service as best we can and work in consult and partnership with our, you know, our colleagues in the community who will certainly be managing the majority of, of the patient's care. Yeah. Yeah, it's been pointed out to me that most cardiologists have an understanding of all these things, but in advanced cardiac care, in heart failure, in the area of heart failure in the hospital, the therapies are just more at hand. You're more ready to uh, handle the more difficult case than a general cardiologist might. Yeah, to, to a degree. You know, you go to these, these bigger institutions with, you know, high-level heart failure programs. And I mean, my heart failure group, who is phenomenal. Mm-hmm. And, and known through the world for what they do, they they are probably my my biggest and best referring group because we work as part of a team and they are aware and abreast of the the newest, latest, greatest technologies and techniques that are available. Yeah, because they're constantly exposed to them. Right, yeah. one cannot expect the same exposure for you know people out in smaller communities where they're not often seeing patients with very very poor heart function or very very bad coronary disease. Because those patients end up being transferred to centers like this one. Yeah, it's almost like the, they might, you know, it might benefit patients in the future to have sort of an advocate to be able to go to, so that they can have direction and go in, in the, you know, to go to the right kind of centers uh, for this kind point. of help. It's yeah. a great point. We hope, yeah. or we all try, as you know, as general cardiologists or as general internists or as physicians in general, to be our patients' advocate. And that process sometimes can be very, very challenging, but but we uh, we do our best. With it. So interesting. So, what are some important modern technologies that help provide revascularization to complex coronary artery disease in patients that require this sort of treatment? Yeah, great question. Um, broadly speaking, the technologies that we use can be divided into a couple of different buckets. One is the technologies that we use to actually manipulate and change the coronary artery. So we've had an explosion of wires, basically the the implements that we use to cross blockages or create pathways through blockages so that we can deliver balloons and stents along them. These wires have iterated in their structure and they're engineering greatly in the last 15 years, specifically in the last five to 10 years, where wires are now very much um, specialized tools where the suite of wires that those of us who do complex intervention have available to us is very much like a set of pegs where you can pick the square peg that needs to fit into the square hole. You can pick just the right wire Hmm. to complete a particular task. And that has dramatically changed our ability to do some of these. You know, there are a bunch of ancillary devices that you can use to help cross and support lesion crossing as well, microcatheters, guide support devices and such. But stents and balloons themselves, the actual metal meshes that we put into the arteries to hold them open, have also advanced a great deal. Where now stents are very flexible, they're very strong, and the drug coatings that they have on them are very modern. So 
not only can we get them to the site of blockage and, and deploy them well, but we can make sure that they're really well deployed and that the drug on them will continue to keep patients from developing re-narrowings or, or instant re-stenosis over time. And they're, it's not a perfect thing, but it's, it's dramatically improved since the older days of stents that were made out of just bare metal. Wow. Um, intravascular imaging devices is a really big, important advent uh, where we can actually put cameras inside the arteries now and look at the vessel from the inside out so we can judge not only what the size of the vessel is now, but how big the vessel needs to be at its maximum capacity. That way we can put the largest possible stent in and therefore make the largest amount of blood flow happen for the heart muscle. And then perhaps one of the most important splashes on the scene in the last 10 years has been miniature pumps that can be put in through a poke hole in the leg or a poke hole in one of the arteries of the arm and threaded into the heart that can actually suck blood out of the heart and pump it out into the body. These devices are very important in taking over a part of the heart's function while we work on it. And in doing so, make sure that we support the whole body and all of the body's organ systems with good blood supply while the heart's blood supply might be comparable. Uh, and at the same time, they offload the heart. They reduce the amount of blood actually in the heart muscle, and so they reduce the amount of work that the heart has to do, thereby allowing the heart to rest. Those two really important features, the blood supply to the body and the ability to rest the heart, have begun a revolution in the complex coronary interventional space and, to be honest, the management of patients in shock, those whose hearts are, are functioning very, very poorly because of a variety of issues. Those devices allow us to rest the heart in those situations and maintain good blood supply to the body so that perhaps patients who otherwise may have been relegated to getting a VAD or needing a transplant might in fact be able to recover and sometimes go home. So, so going back to the, the patients themselves, people who have, have, who have these conditions, is that genetically determined? Is it the environment? Is it both? Yeah, that's, that's one that we struggled with over many years. There was an, an old study called InterHeart that was published uh, by a guy named Salim Yusuf in Hamilton, which was a big worldwide study that had a simple hypothesis. If you have coronary artery disease in Japan, it's caused by a bunch of different things than coronary artery disease in Canada or in the U.S. And what they found was that they couldn't have been more wrong. Coronary artery disease in the overwhelming majority of patients is caused by the same five things. Badly controlled blood pressure, high cholesterol, diabetes, smoking, mm -hmm. and a family history of premature coronary disease. Right. And when you combine the effects of those five risk factors, you can explain the majority of coronary disease prevalence throughout the world. So that's why it's so important to attend your doctor's office regularly and make sure that if you have these risk factors, they're very carefully monitored and managed. So you never end up on a table like the one my patients are on when I'm about to do their procedures. It's much better to prevent or treat it. So if you have a genetic predisposition, it doesn't guarantee that you'll have the disease if you can control those factors that contribute to it that are environmental. Yeah, That's exactly correct. Yeah, that Genetics will certainly tip the balance, mm -hmm. but good management of the other risk factors can tip the balance away from coronary disease towards health. Yeah. It's, it's an interplay of those factors that really determines whether or not. Yeah, so interesting. I, 
I know it's funny because, you know, with everything that I've been through, uh, several surgeries over a 23-year period, many of my friends asked me, you know, did your parents have this and, and so forth. And I never had coronary artery disease. In fact, I've never had a chest pain. I never had a heart attack. I, I presume that my heart failure was probably from the fact that I had a congenitally fused valve and that the 20 to 25 years uh, living with that until the valve broke down probably caused mm -hmm. a lot of stress on my heart. I presume that's it. Uh, it certainly could have been, you know, extended periods of high blood pressure as well. But it, only, it, it, it seems to make sense that the valve disease contributed to the failure of the heart as far as the ventricle goes. But, you know, there is an assumption that I had a heart attack or I have coronary artery disease. I don't have high, high cholesterol either. So some of those factors that might have been inherited weren't for me, but I had I had other things that that caused That's my particular disease. So it's it's so interesting to try and figure it out. I mean, there are many things that can go wrong, unfortunately, which is amazing considering that the heart beats you know sixty to eighty times a minute every minute for one's entire life. Yeah. But they, they, these various things can can be caused by a variety of different factors. Yeah, and and it's good because we you know and thank you for today because you're making. Uh, you know, people more aware of these conditions, and we're talking about these things. And you're right, I think most people don't even know how, how the heart works. And it's the most important muscle that we have in our bodies. And until we're affected by the disease, whether it's ourselves or a, or a relative, you know, we don't pay much attention to it. I think COVID was sort of like that too, where everybody knows what a virus is now. Okay. <laughs> and I think in the past, nobody really cared much about what a virus was. <laughs> so what might the future look like in complex high-risk interventional procedures? You know, I think we're, we're moving forward to making devices that we use even more precise and to make our selection of patients for these procedures even better. We're getting better at predicting risk and predicting reward. So the right patients are getting the procedures and we're able to counsel them carefully and accurately on you know, what the potential risks are and what the likely benefits are. And then I think the technology is going to con continue to iterate, continue to get better, where the pumps that we use to take over heart function while we're working on these hearts or managing them when they're severely dysfunctional are going to get smaller and more effective, mm -hmm. where challenges associated with their management like bleeding are going to get better. And then I think we're going to continue to develop a better understanding of what the very best results of what we do look like, right? Mm -hmm. the, the intervascular imaging, for example, those cameras that we put inside the arteries, these are some of the most useful tools that the modern interventionist will use. There are no less than nine randomized control trials, the highest form of evidence that we have in the literature to show that the, the use of intervascular imaging, specifically intervascular ultrasound in this case, results in a hard outcome benefit, means differences in death, heart attack, uh, you know, repeat procedures. Yet only 12% of people in North America actually use them on a regular basis. Hmm. That doesn't make any sense, right? If you go out to Japan, 90% of them are using intervascular ultrasound. And the reason is because the system is set up to support the use of these devices, whereas our system here doesn't fund them, hmm. even though the evidence there is really strong. So, so I think part of the future there is also our systems of care smartening up to the idea that patients are sick and they're getting sicker. They're not necessarily getting better because we're good at making people live longer, but time is uh, something that catches up with everyone. 
you know, eventually people will develop these types of problems, only they'll be older and sicker when we have to treat them. So we really need the support from the system to understand that patients will need more to get the best results possible. And for that reason, these types of devices have to be funded and their use has to be supported. Yeah, there are so many factors that are going to go into making this thing uh, work for so many people in the future. So interesting. So as we close a little uh, here, what is the most important message you would like to share with our listeners in the global healthcare community, providers and patients? I think the, the, the messages for those two groups are ever so slightly different, even though we are all part of the same team, which is the team that tries to get the best results for our patients. For providers and for my colleagues, I think this is just restating what we all know, which is just because something is harder to treat, mm -hmm. it doesn't mean the indication to treat it has changed. And when a patient will present with very difficult, challenging disease or challenging factors that make providing revascularization more difficult, it just is an opportunity for two heads to be better than one, four heads to be better than two, partnerships to form, so that together we can use one another's expertise to be able to provide the care that these patients need, because they need it. They've demonstrated that, that they need it, and we know that they will benefit from it when they're selected appropriately. So it's our responsibility either to provide that care or to refer these patients on to people who can provide that care. Yep. It is not appropriate to simply say, because we can't do it, it can't be done. And, yeah. and for patients, I think the message is that early and careful preventative care is really, really good. The value of this can't be overstated. But when that has failed, when you end up in a challenging spot where you need complex coronary intervention or complex revascularization, be informed. Spend some time reading about your disease process from reliable sources. Listen to podcasts like this where you have an opportunity to to talk to doctors who are who are aware of coronary artery disease and how to manage it so that you can learn and then ask informed questions of your healthcare providers. Ultimately, as doctors, that's what we want. We want partnerships. Some of the biggest challenges with patients in these situations are that they believe that they are out of control. You know, our bodies are the only things that we really have control over. But mm -hmm. it's important to recognize that the, that the good doctor, the one that really cares about you, the one to whom you matter, will help you recognize that that as the patient, you're still the one in control, but the relationship that, that your doctor and you will form is just a way of you trusting them to be your voice. Yeah, so interesting. Uh, and you're right, self-advocacy is becoming more and more important in this day and age. But I think you're right. I think what I'm seeing in the hospitals myself over a 23-year period is an increase in collaboration. I notice it in my hospitals now in a way that it probably wasn't as obvious in, in past decades to the point where, you know, we're seeing a lot more collaboration. And I think COVID might have also helped to create that as well, where those, you know, separate groups, if you will, came together in the critical care space. Uh, and so there had to be more collaboration. Certainly, so. certainly true. The, the silver lining from this terrible pandemic. Yeah. So are you able to visit India now with COVID being what it is right, uh, you know, there right now? I know that it's very important for you and your family to go back. Yeah, you know, one of the things that I considered a tremendous privilege to be able to do is help with physician education in different parts of the world, specifically in the complex coronary intervention space. And one of the great loves that I developed over this time was 
being able to work with my colleagues there to try to create the infrastructure necessary to provide the many deserving and, need, and, and patients in need with this type of care over there. So I have wanted to do since this all began. I'm happy to say that COVID numbers in India, as of this date, have dropped significantly. They're in yeah, very, good. very good shape. And they are continuing to push vaccination as aggressively as they can. And the population is responding. You know, they are, they are getting safer. And so hopefully in the not too distant future, we can all get back to, you know, the lives that we, you know, that we remember so fondly where we can be near one another and we can, we can continue to interact in the ways we used to. Certainly for me, yeah. the trip to India. Would... Yeah. Hopefully the pandemic will allow us to travel a little bit more. Indeed. I enjoyed India when I was there and it's a, uh... I know, you know, just the, the culture there itself is so uh, deeply, you know, concerned with education. So, you know, to get everybody vaccinated is a tall task, but I think that, you know, it's one that's worthy of the effort. So, yeah, it's a special place. It's a special yeah, place. Here absolutely special place. As, as, so. as is America and Canada. You know, and, uh... <laughs> I'm yeah, lucky. Absolutely. My heart lives in both. Yeah. This has been my great honor to have you as my guest on The Heart of the Matter. And on behalf of myself and our listeners, I thank you so much for all that you have done in this very complex area of cardiology for the global community and with your incredible dedication to your work there in Canada and for sharing this time with us here in the States. I hope that we can do this again soon. Indeed. Thank you so much. And, and thank you very much to uh, your listeners for the opportunity to address that. It was a privilege. Yeah, sure. No, I, I'm glad that we uh, were determined to make this work. So I'm glad it happened. And thank you for your time. Yeah. Thank you. The, that is our podcast for today. Please join me next time for another intriguing, informative, and entertaining conversation. Please visit our website at www.drheart2heart.net for upcoming podcasts. Or if you'd like me to host an online presentation for your group or organization. Um, we have a new podcast website called theheartguyspeaks.com. You just put that into your device and all of my podcasts come up on that. It's really easy. If you'd like to be a guest on the Heart Guy, I should say on the Heart Guy Presents the Heart of the Matter podcast, please email me at theheartguyspeaks at gmail.com. Our podcast can be found on Apple iTunes, iHeartRadio, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and several other platforms. If you search The Heart Guy Presents the Heart of the Matter, you will find it. And until next time, this is Dr. Gary Sherman, The Heart Guy, wishing you peace and hope.